on this Thanksgiving weekend, it appears that um, quite a few of us are traveling, and we pray that God will protect and give travel mercies to those who are on the road, and they would be joining us back safely. I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 11, as we are rapidly approaching um, the end of our sermon series on the book of Daniel. Next week, we'll have the last chapter. I also want to encourage you, as Marshall mentioned earlier, next week we will also have the Living Native, the uh, Noah's Ark <clears throat> program in our service where about 100-plus uh, Noah's Ark parents and their children will come to do a, a Christmas presentation as part of their Noah's Ark program here at Parkless Baptist Church. Encourage you that we would be a great light to them and an encouragement to them. And so we encourage you that, that you would be with us and join us. And we pray that God's Spirit and His Word will move so that those who are without Christ may be touched. And as far as we know, there are about 30%, 40% of Noah's Ark families who might not have any connection to God. And we pray that next week's service, for some of them, it might be the only time in a year when they come to church. We want to pray that the Lord would use next, year's, uh, next uh, week's service to speak to their hearts. Back to Daniel chapter 11, where you may find this passage on page number 781. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. It's a longer passage, and I encourage you to bear with us as we read through about 45 verses um, through this chapter. I'm going to start with verse 2. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others." The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for, for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and with slaughter. Many, and will slaughter many thousands, 
yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege rams and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will, he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people will feel secure, and he will size it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and, the only, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, the king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in the battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God 
will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king who will do as he pleases, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for one desired by women, for we, he, for, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt and the Libyans and the Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas and at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. This is the ending of chapter 11, but not the ending of the vision Daniel gets. Because as we will see next week, the vision that began in chapter 10 will only end in chapter 12. So we're only reading a portion a portion of this vision. And yet, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me and ask God to give us his wisdom and spirit to speak to us through his word? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, we praise you that you are a God who knows the beginning and the end. And you know the end from the very beginning. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And you have determined the course of the destiny of the nations of the earth. To you, O God, we turn now, and by your Spirit we ask that you would lead us into all understanding as we examine this portion of Scripture, this vision that you have given your prophet Daniel. Speak to us, O Lord, we pray, through your Holy Spirit and for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, I know what you may be thinking as we read chapter 11. Oh, my word. What kind of sermon will the pastor get out of this chapter? Um, many commentators 
feel very discouraged and have a very low view about the ability to preach this chapter. As a matter of fact, one commentator said, this chapter might be treated in Bible classes. We do not see how it could be used for a sermon or for sermons. Now, with that kind of encouragement, you can imagine how, what kind, how kind of zeal, what kind of zeal I felt this week to prepare through the sermon. And also remembering it was Thanksgiving week also. <clears throat> now, from our perspective, many of the battles of chapter 11 have happened in history in the 4th through the 2nd century B.C. So on first appearance, the need to focus on all these details, all these historical details, may seem to be less important. Yet, do you remember last week as we went to chapter 10? Do you remember the long and significant introduction to this vision? And how it wiped out Daniel's strength? All of that happened to point to the weighty importance of this vision. Why would we now consider this vision less important or, or, or less important to preach? We dare not consider the content of this vision trivial. Two ways we could take in looking at this passage. We could look at the history of this vision and all the historical uh, accounts and the names uh, told in this vision. And we may do some of that very, very sporadically here and there just to get a sense of the chapter. But commentators have used many, many pages in their books to identify verse by verse each of these kings and their battles and their alliances. And I am not going to go through each of those historical identifications because I can assure you um, I would probably put you to sleep pretty quickly here. But really, that's not the point of the passage to help us know and identify the historical figures of this vision. This vision has a deeper purpose for the people of God to be encouraged through what God foretold to Daniel through this vision. So really, a second way we want to look at and we want to take as we approach this chapter is not so much look at the historical characters through this vision, but look at the message that God wants to give Daniel as a way to encourage Israel, as a way to encourage us today, even in the 21st century. Here's what we will focus on today. The title of the sermon is taken from one of the verses of this chapter, and the title is, Who Will Stand Strong in Those Days? And the answer is given in verse 32. God says to Daniel, The people who know their God will stand firm and resist him. This is what the chapter is about. To prepare the people of God as they will be facing a time of wars, many wars from many kingdoms and kings and alliances, as they will face these wars and especially the attacks brought against the people of God, the question is, who will be able to stand firm in those days? And the answer is, the people who know their God. To help us make better sense of chapter 11, we should remember that it started with a long introduction in chapter 10. And the vision also recounts some of the details of chapter 8. But unlike chapter 8, this last vision in Daniel will extend all the way to the end of human history when the attacks 
of the Antichrist against God's people will reach a final climax. Yet chapter 12, which concludes this vision, uh, will provide us with God's greatest ending, the greatest deliverance that God will bring about at the end of the chaos, at the end of the suffering. We will look at this grand deliverance next week as we will come to the end of this, of this book. But today, as we look at chapter 11, we look at who will be able to stand in those days. And one way to interpret and, and, and organize chapter 11 is to look at three sections which seem to be uh, forming in this chapter. The futile efforts of human kingdoms. That's the first picture. The futile efforts of human kingdoms. The intense attack of human kingdoms. And finally, the final attack of human kingdoms. Chapter 11 is filled with a pretty dark picture of what human history will bring against God's people. And there's not very much I can do about painting a more positive picture when the chapter speaks so much about so many wars, so much conflict, and that this conflict will climax in the end against God's own people, against God himself. We'll have to wait until chapter 12 to, to wait to see what kind of deliverance God will bring. But let's look this morning at the futile efforts of human kingdoms. I'm often impressed with lovers of football, like Tommy uh, in our congregation. People who really love football hate to miss a football game. Did you notice that about football lovers? And when they really have to miss a football game, they record it. And then when they record the game, they don't want to know the result. Why? Because they love watching football. And knowing the end result will sort of dismiss the thrill or deflate the thrill of watching the game. So football lovers don't want to know the future of the game. Now, I'm amazed. Why is it that human beings, when we think of the history or now of our destiny, of history of humankind, of human race, we have the opposite attitude? We would love to know what the future brings. Why is it that we can't adopt uh, uh, an attitude of, 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 the, of football lovers about their football watching, about the way of life. God has given us a, a curiosity to know the future. And God has given us some previews to know what's coming so that we know and we are, would be prepared. Unlike football games where the destiny of the game is really a trivial matter, and I know I just lost all my football lovers. In life, knowing the future, knowing what God has determined, is of significant importance. So we approach this passage with realizing that God is ready to reveal to Daniel what is about to happen. Now from verse 2, to verse 20, the text covers about 355 years of history. From what will happen 
to the time when King Cyrus will um, step down from his throne. Three more kings will come to the throne of Persia. And then all the way to uh, King Seleucus IV, the king that uh, came after Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. He's not Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's Antiochus the Great, the third. After him, Seleucus IV comes, and his reign is described in verse 19. In these 19 verses, there's a refrain that shows up ten times. Many kingdoms are mentioned. Alliances are mentioned. Even the alliance with Cleopatra is mentioned in one of these verses. I'm not going to go through the historical identification because that's not the main point of the passage. Yet one of the echoes that is heard over and over again through this historical account is a message of the failures of the human kingdoms. I just want to emphasize a few of these uh, ten instances when human failure or the failure of kingdoms is mentioned. Look at verse 4. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. In verse 4, the reference is to Alexander the Great. He was mentioned just in one verse, verse 3 earlier, how he will rise after the three kings of Persia, but he will, and his empire will be broken up and parceled toward the four winds of heaven. Now here's the amazing part just in this, um, this verse. If you were to read the history books that deal with this time frame in human history, Alexander the Great gets a pretty huge spotlight. The Hebrew Bible gives him about 27 words and ends with this message, his empire will be broken up and divided in four. After this division of four kingdoms, the focus will be on a conflict between um, regions and kingdoms north of Israel and south of Israel. When they say the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, they're not talking just about um, the north and the south as we have experienced it in the U.S. history. It's really talking about kingdoms north of Israel and south of Israel. In verse 6, the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. This was the alliance forged through Bernice's marriage to Antiochus II, but the alliance failed its purpose. Then in verse 9, in verse 11, in verse 12, verse 14, verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19, the constant theme is how various kings will fail in their attempt to gain and maintain power. And this section ends with verse 20, where another king, following the one in verse 19, will be destroyed, yet not in anger nor in battle. Up until now, most of the destructions and the failures have been as a result of war. But in verse 20, the king will be destroyed not in anger or in battle. History tells us that Seleucus IV, who followed Antiochus III, died because his revenue collector poisoned him. Now, commentators going, and I just gave you a, a quick synopsis of just a few selective portraits. Commentators love to point how these 19 verses, or from, from verse 2 to 20, describe history 
with an incredible detail and with an incredible accuracy. But what's the point of this collage of historical highlights that, from Daniel's perspective, were still going to take place in the future? One commentator mentioned the following, that these verses shows the profound frustration of history. History is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars. As one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force, yet though the tide in affairs of men comes in and goes out, in the end, it accomplishes precisely nothing. On one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. What do power and politics gain from all their toil? Precisely nothing. That's the point of the first 20 verses of chapter 11. Habakkuk 2.13 says, Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? That's what Habakkuk the prophet said about the Lord. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labors, labor is only fuel for fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Oh, friend, what a grim picture of human history. So how can we be edified by this prophetic account of events that have already taken place? Well, from our perspective, this is a review of history and may not seem as critical to us. But if you're standing in Daniel's place, from Daniel's perspective, this was all a preview of the future. And to receive such detailed description of the rise to power for the next four centuries was incredibly powerful and impressive. Imagine if God today would give us a picture of a detailed rise to power of the next world powers for the next four centuries from, day on, from this day on. Imagine what kind of comfort that might be. Imagine what kind of guidance that might be. Imagine what kind of comfort it would be to know that our God not only knows the future, but determines it, determines it. God has a personal involvement in the destiny of the nations, even of the pagan nations. No wonder that the Apostle Paul preaches in his sermon in Athens that God made every nation of men from one man, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and that he determined the times set for them, and that the exact and the exact places where they should live. How amazing that God would be so involved with human history and with the nations of the earth. Why would God do this? Paul says, God did this so that men would seek him. So when we realize that God knows of the future and he determines which kingdom will rise, which kingdom will fall, which alliances will be forged, which alliances will be destroyed and dissolved, why is God so personally involved in all of these details? So that men would seek Him. 
This should encourage us to believe that what God has determined will take place. This should also encourage us to take to heart the words of Jesus who said, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world but forfeit his soul? When we have such a view of the futile efforts of world kingdoms, why would we trade in our soul's life for the sake of pursuing the kingdoms of the earth? It's a bad bargain. That's the first point. The futile efforts of the kingdoms of the earth. But as the chapter progresses, we see the intense attack of human kingdoms. This section extends from, the second section extends from chapter, uh, from verse 21 to verse 35. And unlike the first section, where God has given Daniel, a preview of many kings and all their activities, the second section of chapter 11 will focus on the reign of one king and on the activity of one king against the people of God. So if from verse 2 to 20 we see 355 years of history, a very rapid and selective highlight of the key events of this period, in the next 15 verses the camera goes in slow motion to depict 12 years of history and the activity of only one king. Why this change of speed? Because of what this king will do to God's people. Verse 21 through 35 tells us specifically about Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, which we have already met a few weeks ago in chapter 8, when chapter 8 described the battle between a ram and a goat, and after that, four horns, and after the four horns, another horn that has come up. Antiochus Epiphanes in this chapter is also the, the little horn that was coming out in, at the end of chapter 8. Yet here in chapter 11, we have a few more details emphasized and a connection between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist as it will be building up towards the end of the chapter. Verse 27, there's a phrase that repeats several times. And this, uh, this phrase is like an echo in the second section of this, of this chapter. It's a phrase, at the appointed time. Look at, verse, uh, at, this, at this phrase in, in verse 27. It's repeated again in verse 29. And it's repeated again in verse 35. The events mentioned in these verses will take place at the appointed time. But who appointed the time? You remember how this vision started in chapter 10? At the end of chapter 10, the angel told Daniel, verse 21 of chapter 10, but first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. And then, that, and then the angel tells Daniel, here's what the appointed time is in the book of truth. Who's doing the appointment? God is. God appointed these key events. In other words, the mounting tension between these kings, between Antiochus IV and the other kings of the surrounding nations, and then against the people of God, all these mounting tensions have been appointed by God. They are events that are appointed in God's calendar, and even the attack against God's covenant people happened on God's calendar. No matter what Antiochus Epiphanes would do to God's people against God's covenant, 
His actions were going to be happening on God's timing. In this sense, verse, uh, these verses tell us not simply about a future storm that is coming against God's people, but it's also assuring them that it's part of God's calendar. It will happen at the appointed time, and the end of the storm, the end of this time, will also happen at the appointed time. Friends, how gracious is of God to prepare His people for the future persecution by assuring them that everything will happen on God's timing? How gracious. God is in control even in determining when such attacks on God's people will be permitted. So we are called to trust in God's control, in God's ability to control the universal master calendar. That's one highlight in the second section. But notice another highlight in the second section, which was missing in chapter 8. How will God's people be able to stand when such an attack will be mounted against God's covenant? Notice verse 30, and this is specifically talking in its historical context about Antiochus uh, Epiphanes attacking the people of Israel and the temple. When Antiochus will vent his fury against the holy covenant, he will show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. How amazing. This wicked ruler will show favor to those who will forsake God's covenant. Look also at verse 32. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. In other words, his means of corruption will first be not by force, but by flattery. And notice who will fall for the flattery. Verse 32. Those who have violated the covenant. Wow. Compromise in our covenant with God makes us more susceptible to further lies. Makes us more susceptible to buy the flattery of the evil one. In contrast to those who fall for the flattery, notice who will be able to resist such spiritual attacks. Notice how verse 32 ends. But the people who know their God will firmly resist Him. Oh, what a promise. Oh, what a hope. Notice it doesn't say the people who will be stronger than Him will resist Him. But the people who know their God will stand firm and will resist Him. What will enable to God, God's people to resist the flattery and the corruption this wicked king will bring is their knowledge of God. People who know their God and know His ways won't be able to fall for the flatter, His flatteries that easily. This is not just a great promise, but also a great incentive why we should keep pursuing a growing knowledge of God. Knowing God leads us to a right living before God. Knowing God protects us from buying into the lies of the kingdom of darkness. You want to see a great illustration of a man who has lived such a life of knowing God? Daniel. He is the supreme example of a man who knew his God and thus chose not to defile himself in Babylon. So the kings of Babylon were neither able to flatter him. Remember chapter 1? 
nor buy him with benefits. Remember the king's food? Nor corrupt him with their threats. Remember chapter 6? Verse 32 captures the entire life that Daniel has lived. Do you know what? Daniel's life points also to someone else who knew his God better than any man who ever lived on earth. And that man is the very Son of God who came from God to tell us about God. No one was able to buy Jesus out with flatteries. Remember Jesus in the desert? Tempted by the serpent? Remember how he was flattered? If you are the Son of God, command these stones. What a flattery. What a temptation. What a trap. And Jesus, when he was threatened and his own life was endangered, no threat of no human governor was able to detain him from staying faithful and remaining faithful to God and resisting the temptation of human kingdoms and kings. It is Jesus who in the end is the greatest one who knows his God, who knows his Father, and he came down to earth to reveal us the Father. Oh, friend, what about you and me? When you think about your pursuit of God, about your pursuit of growing in the knowledge of God, are you encouraged in this pursuit? Is that pursuit a source of your strength and spiritual vigor? Or is it a stalled, apathetic pursuit of knowing God? Several weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon by David Platt on knowing God. And David Platt finished with a, a wonderful um, four-point outline, a wonderful conclusion. I want to give it to you because it's just so challenging and powerful about the importance of knowing God and how we know God. He said, routine religion, when we know God, routine religion is no longer tolerable. Apathy is no longer present among people who know their God. When we know God, casual worship is no longer possible. If you know God truly, you will love God deeply. So you will worship God passionately. When we know God, total surrender is no longer optional. When you look at the, at the God of the Bible, the thought of not submitting to Him, who is the Lord of history and who can determine the destiny of nations, the idea of not submitting to Him is no longer an option. Actually, the idea and thought of not submitting to him as Lord is blasphemous. When we know God, global missions is no longer negotiable. You cannot know this God and not run to the nations to let the people know about this God. Daniel 30 11.32 gives us an amazing benefit for pursuing the knowledge of God. The people who know their God will be able to resist Him and the attacks of the one who attacked the people of God. Oh, friends, notice, notice the importance of the knowledge of God in chapter 11. Notice the importance of why we should pursue the knowledge of God 
with all our vigor, with all our passion, with all our heart, with all our strength and mind, so that when the day of trouble comes, we might be able to resist him. But notice also verse 32, uh, verse 33, it says that those who are wise will instruct many. In other words, the people who know their, their God are called wise, and one of their characteristics is that they will instruct many. This phrase is repeated again in chapter 12, verse 3, and there the wise are also described as those who lead many to righteousness, so that the people who know their God not only will be able to resist the evil one and oppose him and stand firm, but they will also be wise in instructing others and leading them in the way of righteousness so that they're not only able to protect themselves from the lies of the wicked ruler, but also to help others to wake up from their deception and lead them to the ways of righteousness. Friends, I hope you realize that this passage is not speaking only about pastors and Sunday school teachers. It's speaking about every Christian, every person who belongs to the people of God. They, we are called to be instructing others in the ways of righteousness. Let me ask you this morning, are you doing that? Are you among the wise who are instructing others and leading others into the way of righteousness? And if so, who are the people? Could you name them? If you're a parent, I hope you could name your children. If you're a grandparent, I hope you could name your grandchildren. That you're taking a deliberate emphasis to instruct others in the way of righteousness. If you're struggling with finding at least one name on that list, I wonder why. Why is it that we are not instructing others in the way of righteousness deliberately, intentionally, with purpose? I'm not talking just about living life so others may see the light inside of you. I'm talking about you actually instructing using words, speaking to others the word of truth so that they might be led in the way of righteousness. That's the kind of instruction I'm talking. Are you doing it? Church, are we doing it? This is one of the reasons why here at Parkins Baptist Church we encourage strongly the idea of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. We encourage strongly the idea of members speaking the word of God into each other's lives encouraging one another, admonishing one another, asking accountability questions of one another, so that we together, as we speak the Word of God to one another, we may encourage and instruct one another in the way of righteousness. Friends, there is another important detail in verse uh, 33. It tells us that even though the wise will instruct many, for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. The fact that we are doing what God calls us to do will not keep us away from times when we may have to pay for this truth with the cost of our lives. But there's a little phrase in verse 33. It says, for a time. It's not forever. It's not always. And perhaps here in the West we are living in a time when it's not for that time that we have to pay for our lives. But a time may come even here. And there, there's, this time is also around the world. There are Christians who are paying with their lives for the truth of what they are professing in Christ. 
Friends, the point is that knowledge of God leads God's people to such a degree of resistance that even they would rather die than buy the lies of the wicked, wicked ruler. This is the intense attack against the people of God. Last but not least, the final attack on the king of the human kingdoms against God's people. From verse 36 to verse 44, 45, we have a detailed profile of another king. Now, for, for some of us, when we get to verse 36, especially as we read, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself. We might have the impression that he's talking still about King Antiochus Epiphanes. But commentators, and as we look closer to the rest of this chapter, we realize that Many of the things described about this king never happened about King Antiochus Epiphanes. So commentators give three options. One, either whoever wrote Daniel, the angel, gave this description, they were simply wrong. Or they exaggerated ministerially speaking, they said certain things with greater exaggeration to emphasize the truth. Or, he's really not talking about King Antiochus Epiphanes IV. There's another king that is still to come that will do all the things that have not been accomplished by King Antiochus Epiphanes. And yet the language seems as if it's still talking about King Antiochus Epiphanes. Why, why would God do this? Because oftentimes God would speak about the future in language and events of the past. So think of the fact of God speaking of a time when he will bring the exodus back or bring the people back out of the exile. The, and, and God would use the picture of the exodus as a way to tell them how he will bring God's people back. Oftentimes God can use events in history to foreshadow and speak about even greater things that will come. And I think that's what's going on in the second half or the last part of chapter 11. It seems like King Antiochus is still on the forefront of this vision, but it's not. It's really about the Antichrist. So that one of the things that we're told here is that Antiochus was just a small-scale model of what this final king will do. Have you seen toys that are small-scale? These days, people have toys that are so nicely done in small minutia that it feels like they're real trains or real cars. And kids love them because they feel so real. And even parents like them because they feel so real. But their strength is really minimal. A 12-volt battery, right? A remote-control access machine. Small stuff compared to the horsepowers of the real stuff. Now, here's the hard part. Antiochus Epiphanes is like a little remote control car. And his power and his devastation will, be, will pale in comparison with what the Antichrist will do when the real force of evil will be unlashed at the end of the age. That's frightening, isn't it? 
and many will fall by the sword. Many will be killed. And I say, where's God? Where's God's deliverance? The God of Daniel, who brought Daniel out of the lion's den, where is he? And the answer is in chapter 12. God's deliverance will come. You know how? Through the resurrection. Chapter 11, it's building up this evil climax to point out that God will bring the deliverance at the end of the days through the resurrection from the dead, through deliverance, not from lion's den, but from the den of death, from, the, from the slavery to death. God will deliver us. Your friends, only those who have the hope in Christ, only those who have put their faith in Christ, who is the first fruit of the, the firstborn of the ones who were raised from the dead, only those who put their faith in Christ are able to hope for that resurrection. Oh, friends, when we look at the evil that this king will bring, that this antichrist will bring, when we look at the profile given in these last few verses, it's amazing. He will consist himself, his agenda of self-deification. He will consider himself to be God. And, and Paul writes about this in Second Thessalonians, that this Antichrist would oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God, an object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God and declaring himself to be God. Some of you may say, well, we're modern people. We don't think it'll ever happen in our day. Modern people don't worship or think of other people as gods. President Harry Truman dismissed General Douglas MacArthur as commander of the forces in Korea because of his insubordination and criticism of the U.S. policy in the Far East. Yet the nation despised Truman for the decision. MacArthur addressed the Congress for about 30 minutes in which he kept his audience spellbound as he was making his plain, making plain his own position on the Korean conflict. At the end of his speech, he alluded to the saying, um, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And he, his last words were spoken in a whisper to, into a great hush, simply saying goodbye. People, it was said, were sobbing his praise. One Missouri congressman shouted, We heard God speak here today, God in the flesh, the voice of God. What a blasphemy. Modern man in America can still attribute to other men, to other created beings, the idea of God. Friends, one of the things that we are warned about is that the end times, the Antichrist will attribute to himself self-deification, will exalt himself above every God. We need to be ready for it, and we need to protect the honor and the glory of God himself against any such false pretensions of deity. This final wicked antichrist will make religion, will make of, of war a religion. He will worship the god of fortresses. No other king in human history has worshipped the god of war. 
but the Antichrist will. That's why there'll be so much devastation. In, in verses 39 through 44, his strategy will be to seduce and to dominate. He will spare those who will side with him, but will take down all those against him. But notice verse 45. He will come to his end, and no one will help him. Even the Antichrist will try, even though he will try to annihilate the church and the people of God, and he will act wickedly against the people of God, God says he will come down. A day has been decreed for his end. And just as in chapter 7, God gave this picture of destroying, of judging the Antichrist with no one being able to help him, the divine court will stand in judgment against him, and his, his power shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. That's how chapter 12 gives us an end of the picture of the Antichrist. Friends, futile efforts of human kingdoms, intense attacks of human kingdoms, the final attack of human kingdoms. What will help the people of God to resist all this attack? The people who know their God will stand firm and will be able to resist them. My prayer for us is that we as a people of God, as a church, as members of this congregation, will grow in this knowledge of God so we may be prepared to face those days. Would you pray with me? God, our most gracious Father, we thank you that you care enough to reveal to your servants the future. We thank you that you have given us ample evidence that you are in control of the nations and that you have determined their destiny, that you reveal your plans to us so that the peoples of the earth might seek your face. O oh, most gracious God, we pray that you would prepare us, your people, to face the future, to face the suffering, to face the attacks of the evil one against your people. Lord, we look forward to the resurrection. We look forward with anticipation to the day and the hope we have when all this will come to an end, when the prince of darkness will be judged, when the power that he has will be taken away from him and his evil agenda will be destroyed. O oh Lord, we pray for the redemption of your creation when you will bring all things back to yourself to be under the Lordship of Christ, and when Christ will be exalted. And until that day, we pray, Lord Jesus, come, come soon, and prepare your people for the end. In his name we pray. Amen.